All right, thank you, Cesar. So if you ever asked me the story of how I was called into full-time ministry, I probably told you the story, so this will be a bit of a repeat for you, but I feel like it's relevant today, so I'll retell it. One of the ways God opened my heart to serving the Lord in full-time ministry is by allowing me to live with this family in Mozambique, East Africa, for a considerable amount of time. You see, what made me hesitate in pursuing a life of full-time security is, I mean, uh, full-time ministry, is the perceived lack of financial and social stability that would just be part of the deal. Here in Mozambique, I saw a family living there in what I thought was inhumane condition, right? Their floors were dirt, their walls were mud, their roof was grass, and their toilet was literal hole in the ground. And I thought, how could anyone possibly want to live like this and leave a job in like a city and with all of the comforts of modern society to be in this sort of situation? But somehow, this family was able to be courageously living with more joy and security than some people here who I know who has everything. I'm missing something. Because for us Jakartans who are living in a relatively developed urban city and granted the enormous privilege of practicing our faith quite freely and openly while having access to all of the comforts of modern society, it can be easy to forget that Christianity has become what it is today, the largest and most diverse religious movement in the history of the world, precisely through some faithful followers of Jesus, like this Mozambican missionary I live with, or the Apostle Paul, whose ministry we've been studying over the past few months as we're studying the book of Acts, whose hearts have been so changed and compelled by the gospel message such that they're willing to be living perceivably dangerously in order to be part of God's mission. The witness to the gospel that saved us, to be part of a great commission, to make disciples and gather people of every nation, tribe, and tongue to worship our Lord. Because if we just look at the New Testament, we cannot miss the fact that one of the biggest imperatives that the early church was given was to stand firm amidst persecution, even when under the threat of death. And even today, friends, even though most of us can practice our faith quite safely, we are currently living in a country that is actually illegal to be openly trying to share the gospel to people of other faiths. And we can easily find horror stories of missionaries having death threats or even churches being actually attacked in our country that could quickly like remind us that the circumstances that we live in is actually much more hostile than we probably like to think. And what this can do is it can make our Lord's great commission to make disciples of all nations feel quite intimidating. There are just so many challenges and real threats to preaching the gospel, such that it feels like preaching the gospel can be a tedious task that we got to do, instead of this meaningly eternal mission from God that we get to do. 
Like it's hard enough trying to live righteously for Jesus and now we've got to inconvenience ourselves to preach the gospel too. So how do we get there, friends? How do we get to a place where we can be joyfully fulfilling the Great Commission without being overwhelmed by the challenges that lies inherently within? And this is exactly what our text will discuss. Today we'll be continuing on our series in the book of Acts, and right now we're in the middle of a story about how Paul is being mobbed, being attacked by this angry mob in Jerusalem. Everybody saw this coming, and there was even a prophecy about it, and now we're seeing it happen. And in the text that we'll be looking at today, we'll see how Paul was actually positioned to wisely navigate through this hostility such that he can continue to be a powerful witness to the gospel of grace. So let us read together this text to see how this happened. It's a bit of a lengthy one today, so stick with me as you read through Acts chapter 22, verse 23, to chapter 23, verse 11. This is the word of God. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched, out, uh, stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that uh, one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the consuls, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. 
What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Friends, our text ends with our Lord encouraging Paul to take courage as he continues to testify about Christ. And I think our text teaches us at least four things that we could keep in mind when, that we too, so that we too can be courageous like Paul in being testifiers of Christ. That's right, you heard right. You get an extra point today for free. So our points, four points, we can take courage as we testify to the gospel when we are, one, uniquely prepared for the ministry we're called to, two, ultimately obedient to the God that, we are, that called us, Three, understanding of the points of contact with the people we are called for. And four, understand by, uh, undeterred sorry, by what it seems like setbacks in our calling. Uniquely prepared, ultimately obedient, understanding of points of context, and undeterred by setbacks. So please keep your Bibles open as I will be referring to some of the details in the text. May the Holy Spirit guide us to find wisdom in God's holy and authoritative word. Okay, so point one. We can take courage when we are uniquely prepared for the ministry we are called to. So picking up on the story of Paul, he was about to be attacked by an angry Jewish mob again at the temple of Jerusalem because he said God is going to preach the gospel is sending him, at least, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Something that we've seen a few times before in the book of Acts. And in verse 24, we see that the tribune, the ruling Roman authority at the time, didn't want the situation to descend into anarchy. So he took matters into his own hands and decided that flogging Paul was the appropriate course of action. And for those of us who don't know, flogging is a particularly gruesome form of torture whereby uh, there would be whips with sharp pieces of metal or bone attached to them, and they would use this to examine someone. But why would he do this to Paul? Remember what happened so far, right? The crowds were already unhappy with Paul before he said anything, making accusations against him. Then Paul told the tribune that he wanted to get a chance to make his case before the assembly, which he granted, but what Paul said actually made the crowd angrier. Now remember also, right, Luke specified that the tribune was a Roman who spoke Greek. But what Paul said to the crowd that aggravated them was said in Hebrew. The tribune didn't know what was going on, and he wanted to get to the bottom of this. So his logic was that under torture, Paul would confess to him truthfully what he did that got the crowd so riled up. However, Paul, who was already beaten that day, by the way, probably thought he had enough abuse for today and decided he was going to pass on the flogging, pulled out the ace out of his sleeve. Paul brought up in verse 25 to the Roman tribute that he was in fact 
a Roman citizen by birth. And this is significant because in verse 28, it tells us that the tribune himself actually had to buy his Roman citizenship. Meaning that according to Roman law, Paul outranked the tribune. Therefore, doing anything, any harm to him without the process of a free trial would be completely unlawful. So if they, the tribune, proceeded to flog Paul, they'd be in trouble. Which made the tribune do what was actually the lawful thing and unchain Paul. Now, there can be some wisdom here drawn uh, in this exchange about the relationship between Christians and government. But how Paul himself thought that if we do good, we have nothing to fear from the government, right? Even as vicious as one as Roman rule, as they are ultimately servants of God, as our confession of sin, I mean, uh, statement of faith reminds us, and as our liturgy beautifully explains. But that's not what I'm going to focus on in this point. Because the reason why Luke, the author of Acts, mentions this story is because the rights that Paul had as a Roman citizen is what made possible the events that we'll read in the remaining parts of the book of Acts. You see, soon after this, Paul will leave Jerusalem, and because of his citizenship, instead of being summarily executed by crucifixion or something, right, like you know they did to Jesus, Paul rather had a right to a fair trial which he will use as an opportunity to testify to the gospel to the ones who are trying him. In fact, Paul will actually get the chance to make his appeal to Caesar in Rome. And he actually ended up getting a ride there for free from the Romans. Then when Paul finally gets to Rome, guess what he's doing? That's right, preaching the gospel, which we saw from the last verse of our text was actually what God wanted for him all along. So it ended up working out. So what Luke has done, right, ever since Paul arrived in Jerusalem, was to paint Paul as someone who is uniquely prepared and qualified by God to be such an effective and powerful witness in the context that he was called in. Paul was a faithful Jew who had a profound understanding of the Scriptures. That's why he can share the gospel with the Jews using their own text and remain blameless according to Jewish customs. Paul was also educated in Greek and a fluent Greek speaker from a significant city. That's why he's comfortable interacting with Roman authorities and even evangelizing their non-Jews, as we saw previously in chapter 17 in Athens. Then we just saw that Paul had special privileges as a Roman citizen that gave him this extra layer of protection in a context that saved him from the authorities at least a couple of times here in the book of Acts. And the takeaway here is that, wow, Paul is such a capable and strategic person. That's why God called him. Rather, it's probably more accurate to say that God, from the start, had sovereignly ordered Paul's life before he was born and had been preparing him from this ministry from the start. It was God guiding Paul's steps all along. Even when Paul was persecuting God's people, God turned this evil peer into his, of his life into this powerful testimony 
the radical transformation that the gospel is capable of. It's not a stretch, friends, to say that God has done the same for each and every one of us. He created each of us unique with a particular background, particular set of interests, set of gifts, a particular personality, experiences, family history, and so on. Nothing about us and what's happened to us was by accident. All of these things contribute into making us uniquely capable of testifying to the gospel somewhere to someone. So friends, step one of being able to courageously answer the call God has given every Christian is appreciating that He has created us unique and being willing to leverage the gifts that He has given us for the kingdom. Now, it'll be impossible for me to tell you personally, specifically, how it'll work out for you. Only through prayerful reflection with the Lord can get you there. But I can tell you how God revealed it to me, right? Because I wasn't always convinced that I should be in this exact position, doing full-time ministry. If you get to know me, you'll quickly discover that I'm not what you would conventionally expect as the Indonesian pastor type. In fact, if this was years ago and in another church, I probably wouldn't even get the chance to do ministry. But God in my life somehow surrounded me with people who were thinking theologically, like our former elder Gray and our uh, shared mentor. Then he gave me an above average interest in theology and even gave me the opportunity to study theology which was really hard, but somehow I didn't hate most of the time. And in his sovereignty, God planted CCC, an English-speaking uh, church, filled with people who share my theological convictions and in the city that I grew up in, and in which there are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to co-labor with me and encourage me as I make these baby steps to being more of a faithful servant in God's kingdom. And there's lots more to the story that I can share. But the point is, God made it such that it was feasible and exciting for me to do ministry here. And I want to clarify, right, that I'm not saying that necessarily every one of you is called into full-time professional ministry at some point. But what I am saying is that there is a work of God's kingdom that God had fine-tuned you to do, a ministry that you were built for, and a community or an individual that you can speak to particularly effectively. And finding out and sitting in the assurance that this has happened will give us the enthusiasm and encouragement necessary to persevere in answering God's call. Because the reality is, friends, even though we've been uniquely prepared by God to do this ministry that God's called us, it will not be smooth sailing. There will be a lot of challenges and resistance from the sinful world as Paul experienced. And the first thing that we need to navigate through this hostility is a commitment to the God who has called us, which is point two. We can take courage when... 
we are ultimately obedient to the God who called us. So after Paul got himself out of trouble with the Roman authorities, a couple of curious things happened. And I got to admit that theologians couldn't agree what to make of, right? Which is okay. Not everything is equally clear in the Bible. So let me preface what I'm about to say in the next couple of points that this seemed like to be what's going on for me, okay? And so the first thing that happened was in verse 1 to 5 of chapter 23 in our text. Paul, now unchained, was brought before the council by the tribune so that he could find out what was going on. But before Paul could make his defense, the high priest, Ananias, ordered Paul to be struck in the mouth which made Paul react by saying, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Then those around him rebuked Paul because he insulted the high priest, which made Paul look like he retracted his statement, saying he didn't know that it was the high priest, then basically admitting that he shouldn't have done that. Okay, so what was going on there? There were a couple of theories that uh, might be true, like Paul lied, said that he didn't know so that he would get out of trouble or that Paul said it ironically like I didn't know he was the high priest sure when acting like it which are possible but that would mean that Paul would be acting out of character at least based on what we know of him from the book of Acts and the testimony of Paul's letters so what seemed more reasonable to me and a lot of people who are smarter than me is that Paul genuinely didn't know and he spoke reactively after being struck now i don't know about you but it's been a while but i've been punched in the mouth before but unlike paul i wasn't living in good conscience before god and i probably deserved it but i can testify that it's a rather unpleasant experience and when that happens it's quite natural for you to want immediate revenge, right? You want to get back to them as quickly as possible. But Paul, who's a better man than I, had enough restraint to at least not to respond with violence, but he did say, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And pointing out to them that they were behaving contrary to the law they were claiming to be defenders of. So this phrase, right, like whitewashed wall isn't a common insult nowadays right we'd be probably confused if anything if someone called us that but in the context of the bible this points back to when jesus called the pharisees whitewashed tombs who looked clean and pristine on the outside but inside is full of rot and death and these people at this time was indeed breaking god's law when they struck him so what paul was saying about them was justified it was true, and even Jesus said the same thing about them. In fact, it seems like why Luke puts this narrative right after Paul's exchange with the tribune is to highlight the irony of how the godless Gentile was trying to be lawful while the high priest and God's people who were defending God's law had no respect for what was actually said by the law. However, though what we said was fair, when it was pointed out to them that the high priest uh, commanded him to be struck, Paul didn't double down in what he said. Paul didn't stick to his guns, but he humbled himself. Not out of a fear of the high priest, of the crowds, 
But because God did say in his law in Exodus, to not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Paul was able to show humility and admit fault in the face of experiencing injustice, not because of the fear of man, but because of the fear of God. You know, it kind of reminds me of the story of King David when Saul was trying to kill him. David had the chance to kill Saul when he was dropping a deuce in the cave. But he didn't. Because Saul was the Lord's anointed. And that you shall not lay a hand against the Lord anointed. And David knew that. Even though Saul was not acting like it at all. And didn't deserve that honor. Likewise, friends, it is absolutely crucial in our testimony that we are self-consciously trying to be obedient to the God that calls us. That means making your life purpose being obedient to God's commands. That means doing unto others what we have done unto us. That means considering others greater than ourselves, self-sacrificially loving our enemies, and giving honor to those whom honor is due, even when we've been treated unjustly. Because how are we going to call God's people into repentance and to live righteously before God when we ourselves are not committed to faithfully obeying God's law and repenting when we have messed up ourselves? And I feel like this goes without saying, right, that this is an incredibly difficult task. Impossible, in fact, outside of the help of supernatural grace. Even the Apostle Paul, it looks like in our text, fail to do this. Because there will inevitably be nonsense that this sinful world will make us deal with, which we'll be triggered by, causing our inherent sinful tendencies to surface from time to time. That if we are committed to be submitted under God's law and are willing to acknowledge our limitations and failures when we have sinfully reacted, we can still be courageous as we do not need to fear the rejection of man because we know that we ultimately have the approval of God. Therefore, we can soldier on with full confidence that the gospel can speak to the heart and even the hardest sinner. And what might help us effectively do this is what we'll discuss in point three. We can take courage when we are understanding the points of contact with the people we are called for. So the second curious thing that happened in our text, that after Paul talked back to the high priest and defended the people there, in verse 6 to 10, it seemed like that for some reason, Paul wanted to change the subject and decided to start a theological debate. You see in verse 8, Luke clues in to the fact that there was this hotly debated issue amongst the Jews at that time. There were two camps, right, within the Jews. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees, which was the party of the high priest, by the way, basically rejected anything supernatural, spirits, angels, and the resurrections. But the Pharisees didn't. They accepted them all. So in verse 6, Paul sided with the Pharisees, which only turned out to get the crowd more rowdy. 
why in the world would he do this? Now we got to admit, right, that the text doesn't tell us clearly. One possibility is that Paul wanted to pit them against each other, like some kind of divide and conquer strategy so that he could get away, or that it was some kind of tactical move to get some of them on the side. This is a possibility, but again, it just doesn't seem like a Paul move. After all, he's been righted against before, and he knew all of this resistance was coming, so he was mentally prepared to even die in Jerusalem for the sake of the gospel. So I find it hard to believe that he would just suddenly choke at the last second and decided to save himself at the last minute. But what seems more like Paul, however, that this was another chance to give himself the opportunity to talk about the resurrection of Christ. Because we can see in the following chapters when Paul was put on trial, making his defense, the resurrection of Christ played a central role to that. In fact, the resurrection of Christ is central to Paul's theology in general. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the resurrection of Christ is of first importance to Paul. And if that didn't happen, our faith will be in vain. Moreover, if we reread the speech of Paul prior to this text, we would realize that Paul actually haven't gone a chance to talk about the resurrection yet. Right? Luke was clear about how he just barely finished his testimony before he got punched in the mouth. So he hasn't even gone to the most important part of the message yet. And it seemed more like Paul to me that even after he was struck by them, Paul was determined to get the hope, the resurrection across. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Paul had the courage and confidence to do this because he knew that the gospel had a point of contact with the Pharisees. He understood that through the issue of the resurrection, the gospel can speak into their lives. In fact, this has always been Paul's evangelistic strategy. If we recall the last public evangelistic speech Paul gave in chapter 17 amongst the Gentiles in Athens, Paul knew that the people who were worshiping to an unknown God, it says, would listen to the message that God, the creator of heaven and earth, has made himself known to people. And has given us the hope of the resurrection. Paul knew how to get his listeners to listen. Therefore, friends, if you want to be an effective evangelist, an effective witness to Christ, it is necessary to know how the gospel will be heard to the people we are sharing it to. The gospel can speak to all people at all times, at any place, in any circumstance. You want proof? Just look around in this room. Yet this doesn't mean that you just throw the Bible at someone or just invite them to church and hope for the best. Because effective evangelism only can happen when we can identify what can really speak to that particular culture or individual. Because the gospel ministers most effectively when it is applied to the specific heart issue that someone is particularly interested in 
to the specific anxieties and the longings of our hearts that only the gospel can meet. For example, for my generation, it seems like the gospel is most attractive because it can free us from our existential needs. How this world always somehow can make us feel lonely, insecure, unsatisfied, lacking. So the work of evangelism in our generation is often involves showing how in reconciliation with God we can find lasting and meaningful fulfillment, security, and approval. And therefore, we can grow as effective witnesses of Christ by understanding more about the people we are speaking to and the gospel we're speaking about. Simple, hey? But it does sound like a bit of work, doesn't it? Even possibly overwhelming. Like, how can we possibly know enough about someone or know enough theology to bear witness to the gospel? It is definitely hard. And if you feel that anxiety, I totally agree. The Great Commission was never meant to be easy. But as our Lord said, in verse 11, we can take courage because despite our limitations, the work of laboring in the kingdom of God is unique because the ultimate measure of success is not found through any material means but through faithfulness, which is our final point, just briefly, I promise. We can take courage when we are undeterred by what seems like setbacks in our calling. Friends, if we look at the final result of Paul's evangelistic efforts in Jerusalem, Luke seems to, seems to portray it like a complete failure, right? Paul has aggravated the crowds before as he tried to preach the gospel, but usually Luke adds on something like, but some were curious, or some believed. There is no such caveat in this text. The only thing we know that happened after Paul's ministry is that this angry mob made it necessary to, for the tribune to take Paul away by force. And then in the next chapter, we find out that there was actually a plot to kill Paul. But in the final chapter of our verse, we see that what he receives from the Lord in light of this disappointing result is not disappointment, is not condemnation, but a word of comfort and encouragement. Despite the lack of quantifiable or tangible results in his time in Jerusalem, the Lord stood by him, says in verse 11, and told him to take courage. In a low moment in Paul's ministry, God is effectively saying to him, do not be afraid. Keep going. I am still with you. In fact, God actually affirmed Paul's ministry here, saying Paul ha has, it says, successfully, in the eyes of God, testified to the facts about him in Jerusalem. And God even reaffirms and reestablishes Paul as his faithful servant in the Lord and reminds Paul that God had bigger plans for him. He wants Paul to take on a bigger project that testified to him in Rome the biggest and most influential city in the world. 
So how comforting must these words be to Paul? When he was down, God picked him up and encouraged him to keep going because the worldly result of his efforts is not why God appreciates the value of his work. Because you see, because you see friends, the Bible clearly teaches that the Christian life has always been intended to be a cruciform life, patterned after the life of Jesus, leading to the cross and ending in glory and acceptance by God. Paul's here is successful in God's eyes because he, though imperfectly, has replicated this pattern. Because Jesus was also one who was uniquely prepared for the ministry of the cross. He was the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, as foretold by the prophets. Jesus was also accused by the Jews, but unlike Paul, he didn't get the luxury of skipping the flogging. Yet in all of his life, Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father, doing only what the Father tells him and was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And Jesus actually understood perfectly the point of contact between God and man. He himself actually was the point of contact, taking on human flesh, experiencing every trial, every temptation a human can, such that he can empathize with us in our weakness in every way. That at the end of his life, from a worldly perspective, Jesus can be considered an utter failure. Betrayed by one of his close friends, rejected by his own people, and executed by a foreign tyrannical government. It is the most tragic story ever. Yet in this apparent failure is actually Jesus' crowning moment. In Jesus' lowest moment of utter rejection, and death and unspeakable suffering, Jesus was lifted up to glory. Because Jesus was faithful, God accepted his life as a worthy sacrifice for the sins of the world. That although we are weak and we will continue to fail to answer God's calling as we try to save his, uh, to serve the Lord and replicate his life, we can take courage because Jesus has already succeeded perfectly for us and made us and what we do for him acceptable to God. Friends, even the Apostle Paul is at best an imperfect witness to the gospel. So all we're expected to do is intentionally and thoughtfully point to him who saved us with our words and with our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities. And because Jesus has already been the perfect image of God, if we point to him and commit to do so, we have every reason and optimism that the message of the cross is so beautiful that it can transform the heart of the hardest sinners, of the biggest God-haters, like Paul once was, from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, from an enemy of God to a servant of God. Though not all will accept this message, not all 
will accept our ministry, the Bible assures us that nonetheless, the gospel cannot be stopped and it will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Though we'll always fall short of perfectly replicating the pattern of Christ, and though we'll sometimes be rejected, we can courageously keep calm and carry on knowing that we still have the blessing of God with us. This is why when Jesus sent out the apostles to proclaim the kingdom of God in Matthew 10, in verse 14, he says, if anyone does not receive you, shake the dust off your feet, then leave that house or town. You can move on to the next person to whom God has pointed you to. Therefore, Christian, let's not get overly stressed out about the material measures of success of our efforts like the godless world does. That let's truly internalize that the measure of a successful ministry, no, in fact, the measure of the successful Christian life, is not in numbers, nickels, or noise, but in faithfulness. If you're not a Christian and you're feeling weighed down by life's expectations, if you still find yourself anxious and uncertain about what you can do with your life and what your standing with God is, I tell you that if you give your life to Jesus and commit trying to pattern your life after Him, you can rest assured that God will accept you, God will affirm you, and God will faithfully stand by you as we fail from time to time. Because such is the grace of our Lord not matter what we do, but who He is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are continuously amazed and in awe at the grace that You give us. We are so privileged, Lord. We are not worthy of this opportunity to be participants in the work of Your kingdom, but You give us this chance. Father, Show us your glory. Show us your power that the challenges and setbacks that this world will present to us will seem dim in light of your glorious face. Give us the encouragement, Lord, and enthusiasm. Show us your heart for the lost that we may be compelled to show your love to them. Allow us to appreciate the surpassing meaningfulness of this task. And may we continue to enjoy your presence and your faithfulness as we try to serve you. In your name we pray. Amen.